grace this third gathered thoughts on this episode father rob and i are going to be reflecting upon some of the greatest challenges that we have in following jesus this is going to be one of the focuses of our adult education in the coming weeks and months and so this moments of grace should serve as a good introduction and also a time of reflection as we continue along that route of the greatest challenges that we have in following Jesus. Now, when we think about the challenges that Jesus gives us in order to grow more into our faith and more into him and his life in us, I am sure we all have our own list of the top five most difficult. And I would wager that for most of us, forgiveness would rank pretty highly on our lists. Both forgiving and being forgiven put us in tricky but also very healthy places. To ask for forgiveness, as former Archbishop of Canterbury Rowan Williams would say, to ask for forgiveness means we have renounced the privilege to be right. And Williams would go on to remind us that to forgive means that we have given up the position of the offended victim. And so, both forgiving and being forgiven put us in those healthy places of giving up a, a position of self-righteousness and also the place or position of the offended victim. Well, let's head to the classroom to think a bit more about this sticky wicket of forgiveness and in so doing, add a very important depth to it. Well, in the course of teaching religion to 11-year-olds at a school in London, one of the lessons that I taught was on the Sacrament of Reconciliation. It was part of the curriculum for that year group in school. Now, most people would recognize this sacrament by the name Confession, but in the curriculum it was instead renamed Reconciliation, and that was a good change, a more positive way of conceiving of the whole act of confession and forgiveness. Well, how do you typically envision confession? Maybe we see movie scenes where someone enters a wooden box, the screen is slid back, they confess their sins to a priest, they are forgiven, and then they are told to maybe say a few Hail Marys or Our Fathers. And so the person leaves having divulged something they needed to, they've heard a word of forgiveness, and they've been given a few prayers to say. All is well, all is right, they are seemingly forgiven and reconciled. But is that really the end of this important act? Well, the lesson plan for the Sacrament of Reconciliation that I taught had a bit of a different approach, similar but different. 
The lesson plan broke down the entire act of forgiveness and reconciliation into these steps. First, contrition, being sorry. Second, confession, actually saying, confessing what one is sorry and feels bad about. And then third, forgiveness for that. And we might think that's all, but no, a fourth step was added. After contrition and confession and then forgiveness came satisfaction. And if we wonder what that might mean, we can dwell a bit on one of our collects, the collect for the second Sunday of Easter, where we pray, grant that all who have been reborn into the fellowship of Christ's body may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith, may show forth in their lives what they profess by their faith. In other words, we have been given something, a great gift, that of forgiveness. And that is indeed an act of faith, asking to be forgiven by God or by someone whom we have injured. But that is never the end. That is an important and vital step. But the entire act of relationship rebuilding doesn't end there. As we pray probably every day in our lives at some point, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now note in that prayer, Jesus does not teach us to pray, forgive us our sins because we have said we are sorry enough to have them forgiven, or because we feel bad enough to have them forgiven. No, Jesus teaches us that to be forgiven means to forgive. Together, forgiving and being forgiven, together these acts are all about building and restoring injured relationships. William Temple, reflecting upon this, wrote, God is always ready and eager to forgive. But how can he restore us to the freedom and intimacy of the family life if there are other members of the family towards whom we refuse to be friendly? And that is the crucial move of reconciliation. The move from being forgiven and reconciled with God to forgiving and being reconciled with others. That is our true calling, to freely receive and in turn to freely give what we have received. Our morning prayer thanksgiving may capture this spirit of forgiveness and reconciliation best. For there we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts we may show forth your praise not only with our lips, but in our lives by giving up ourselves to your service, and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days. Not only with our lips, but in our lives. That is the work of reconciliation. It is our gift freely received. It is a gift that we are called to then freely give. Not only to be forgiven, but to forgive to give up the positions of self-righteousness and the offended victim. Well, let us continue to think about forgiveness and reconciliation, and let us do so with a little inspiration from Leon Bridges as he struggles in his song, Forgive You. He struggles with the issue of forgiveness and forgiving those whom he loves the most.
And I didn't make it her thing Your mama didn't know that I was there I tried to swallow my pride When you left me lonely outside And I didn't know you would never show me So comfortable with white lies Looking like a fool What else could I do After all we've been through It still hurts Would I forgive you Thank you, Father Bryce. So, dear listeners, now that we've gotten down to the heart of the matter and heard about forgiveness, you may be asking yourself, what next? What do I do once I've been forgiven? And the answer is fairly straightforward. Help others to know that forgiveness is open to them, too. Once we've received new life, now it's time to go and live it. Or, to put it another way, we're forgiven and given work to do. Which brings us to this next reflection piece on the challenges of following Jesus. The harvest is plentiful. So, over the past few weeks during the adult education hour after the nine o'clock service on Sundays, we've been talking a lot about Scripture, not examining one book or one section of Scripture in detail, but rather exploring the question of what Scripture is and how we can understand it. And it's really been a valuable experience so far because I think we're all gaining a better understanding of how we bring our own biases with us whenever we read Scripture. And there's nothing inherently wrong with having our own biases. We all have them. The key is to be aware of how our own preconceptions can sometimes get in the way of what we're reading. And just being aware of our own biases can actually help open up the truth of Scripture more fully. So if you take nothing else away from what I'm saying, I hope that it's you'll pay attention to your own thoughts as you hear or read Scripture. In any case, one bias I think many of us bring to the table is that when we read or hear certain things in Scripture, we tend to think that there's a sort of otherness about it. And for instance, when we hear about how Jesus called Simon Peter and Simon immediately left his fishing boat and followed Jesus, we might think to ourselves, oh, I wish it were that easy. If only Jesus would appear to me like he did to Simon Peter, you can bet I would drop everything and follow too. But he was a special case. And so that story takes on the tincture of otherness. Or when we hear about Jesus casting out demons, most of us probably think, well, I've never seen a demon. We know a lot lot more about mental health than they did 2,000 years ago, so this language of demons and possessions seems archaic and maybe foreign. And so this sense of otherness has the, I think, rather unfortunate side effect of making us think that some of what's in Scripture just doesn't apply to us nowadays. And what Jesus says about spreading the gospel is a really good case in point. So if you recall, there's a line in the Gospel of Matthew where it says that Jesus is going about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's curing diseases and sicknesses. And when he sees the crowds that are following him, he has compassion for them because they're harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, the unspoken bias that we might have when we hear this passage from Scripture is to think that it's just a minor detail, 
that it records something that Jesus said to his disciples at one point in time and in response to certain circumstances. So really it only applies to the first, the first disciples. And it's those first disciples who become the laborers in the field that spread the good news and help build the church. They are sort of the, the founding fathers of the faith, as it were. But the story, you know, it doesn't apply to us, right? We don't really see harassed and helpless crowds gathering at our church doors, so Jesus' words can't have the same meaning for us, can they? But really, they do. Now, even though we're not standing with Jesus in a small village in first century Palestine and seeing crowds of, of peasants, the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples on that occasion are not foreign or other. They're actually very much aimed at you and me. The challenge is for us. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Right now, even right now, not far from where you are, there are people yearning to hear the good news, yearning to hear that there is meaning to life, that there is hope in the midst of despair. Right now, there are people who need to know that even if their lives are full of disappointment or failure, they're still worthy of belonging in community. Right now, there are people burdened with the feeling that they are unloved and unlovable and who need to hear that they are both lovable and loved. Right now, there are people who have not an inkling that God wants them to thrive and to grow. And especially right now, there are people who feel as though the world has nothing to offer them except judgment, hypocrisy, and empty platitudes. The harvest is plentiful. So the question and the challenge for us then is, will we go labor in the fields? Will we be messengers of peace in a world that seems only to speak the language of violence? Will we let our lives be a sign to the world that God still cares for the poor and the downtrodden? Will we bear witness to the good news that God's love still has the power to bring healing and wholeness? Will we? Will you? The harvest is plentiful. So go out into the fields. And now, in the light of the challenge to get up and go, I think it's time to hear something that will make us get up and go. So we're going to have a listen to Life is in the Air by Drory Hansen Furniture.
getting harder these days to keep my cool. But don't get me wrong, I was never great. I remember days when money didn't matter. I was building forts and swamps in the summers, and you were serving tea to the queen, and everything was beautiful. Well, whenever I hear those opening lyrics from the song Sun's Rising by The Head and the Heart, and I recently heard them while driving around Charleston, and I couldn't help but remark out loud to my wife, I remember those days. They were great. Which days, she said, clearly not paying as much attention to the lyrics as I was. And so I responded, the days when money didn't matter, because I didn't know what it meant to have to earn money, to pay bills, to provide for children, because I was a child and had very few worries. Very few worries worth worrying about, at least. Well, it wasn't long after that my eldest daughter, in her pre-dinner prayer, said, And thank you, God, for this wonderful, long, and blissful break from school. Well, we said, after the prayer was done, what a lovely prayer, but then we added treasure these days. Treasure these days of childhood when you are supposed to revel in long, blissful breaks. When you are supposed to build forts in the swamps and serve tea to the queen. Treasure these days of care and love and protection when very few worries tr or troubles get you down. The days of no worries, childhood days of worry-free summers remind me of what we read in the first letter of John, where it says, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. Now, we might be tempted to skip right past those words because we hear the phrasing so often, we are children of God. But those words speak volumes about what kind of life that God wants us to inhabit and to live out. We hear it so often in scripture, in our liturgies and in our prayers, because that is the place of security, of no worries that God wants us to live from as being children of God. Which means that we have all of those things from God that all children should have from their parents. Love, guidance, mercy, forgiveness, protection. And I'm sure you could name a few more. But that is the power of being children of God. To have all of those things so that we worry a bit less. Or maybe even go a few hours with no worries at all. And that is one of Jesus' great challenges to us. Do not worry. And I am sure you wonder more often than not, how can we not worry? Look around us. Look at us. How can we not worry? Well, I don't think the challenge to not worry is a pie in the sky, live life like it is unreal, or just do it type thing. It is more finding a place where we can with confidence and trust approach everything in life even the most daunting and scary of things. To not worry isn't to live in a dream world. It is to live like a child who looks up at their parent and is able to find nothing to worry about. And that is our thanksgiving and our challenge. To liken our best days of childhood, maybe when money didn't matter, maybe when all we had to do was worry about making forts or swamps, or serving tea to the queen. 
to liken them to the love and care and protection that we have from God. We are children of God. Let us, even for just a moment every day, let us allow our worries to slip away and allow ourselves to rest in the loving arms of our parent like God. Well, now let's hear that song that got us started on this Don't Worry trip. No, not Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin, but the sun is rising by the head and the heart. choices for this episode of Moments of Grace, my guess was that he was going to pick Bobby McFerrin to go along with the theme of Don't Worry. Now, I know I may have guessed wrong, but you'll be happy to hear that I'm not worried. My confidence remains unshaken, which actually brings us to the fourth and final reflection on the challenges of following Jesus. Having boldness. So Christians actually make some pretty bold claims. If you stop to think about it, the truths that Christianity espouses are rather bombastic. We say we believe in one God, and this belief, inherited from our Jewish forebears, once flew in the faith, face of the polytheism of the ancient world. To believe that there was only one God, or only one God that really mattered, was quite a bold claim. And when Christianity began spreading in the Roman Empire, it did so against the backdrop of Roman polytheism. The Roman Empire had already granted this sort of special status to the Jews who were not expected to toe the normal line of religious observance, but the Christians were something new. They didn't quite fit in with Judaism because some of the converts weren't Jews at all, but rather they were Gentiles, and they had a devotion to Jesus of Nazareth. So it was something of an open question about whether the early Christians were in fact introducing something new into the pantheon. 
No, the Christians argued. Instead, the Jesus whom they worshipped was one with the God of Israel and had a special status as the son of the God of Israel. That's a bold claim. And you can probably imagine the initial reception of such an idea. The Romans would not necessarily have balked at the idea of a man becoming a god. Indeed, several Roman emperors were believed to have been divine. But a divine emperor was just another god in the pantheon. The Christians made the claim that Jesus, who was not an emperor but a carpenter, that this same Jesus was the son of the one and the only God of Israel. That is a bold claim. But it gets even bolder. Because these Christians did not just claim that Jesus is the Son of the one and only God, but rather they claimed that Jesus' shameful death is actually the means by which salvation had come into the world. So this powerless Jew who led a small rabble of believers and was executed by the powerful Roman government is somehow more powerful than the emperor? That's a bold claim. Oh, and, and just to top it off, his followers believe that whenever they gather together in his name and share a little bread and wine, Jesus is truly present in their midst. So bread and wine become the means through which the presence of the one and only God is shared among believers. You cannot be serious. That is a very bold claim. But this boldness is really written into our DNA because the prayer that Jesus taught his followers starts off with an exceptionally bold claim. It's in the very first line, our Father in heaven. And if you think about what's being said there, it's eye-popping. Our Father in heaven. We're humans. We are formed of the earth. We are dust and to dust we shall return. In the grand scale of creation, we are of little account. We come from a long line of ancestors who have gone down to the dust of the earth. And yet we pray, as Jesus taught us, our Father in heaven. We say that the one and only God who made all things in heaven and on earth is not some distant deity who has little concern for us lowly humans. Instead, we're saying God is our Father. We are God's children. We, humble dustlings that we are, have learned to begin our prayer with an acknowledgement that God cares enough about us to regard us as family. So we are on intimate terms with the God of the universe. That is a bold claim. But more than that, when we say our Father in heaven, what we're saying or tacitly acknowledging is that heaven is our true home. We're saying that the place where God dwells is where we belong to. If we are God's children, then we are heirs to the place where God dwells. Again, that's a bold claim. But why not? If we learn nothing more from Jesus than that, we should have the audacity to believe that God cares about each and every one of us and that our lives should be guided by the principle of God's intimate concern for us then I think we do well. Such boldness is what leads us to caring more deeply for others, for ourselves, and for the whole of creation. Instead of the rather narrow and unadventurous path of self-preservation and exclusion, having boldness towards God means growing into an ever broader understanding of who we are truly meant to be. So, be bold. 
Now, I hope that you enjoyed these reflections on the challenges of following Jesus. We really do have quite a high calling. But the main thing to remember about all of the challenges is that we are meant to be free. We are meant to be set free. God calls us into freedom. And so I think to send us home, we're going to have a listen to the song Free by Train. Sometimes wraps around too tight, so tight. 